Well, as you know, we have taken a bit of a break in between Romans 8 and 9 because once we get into chapter 9, it is going to be a glorious study of God's love in the past, present, and future for his precious people Israel and also how we are grafted into that. And there are so many theological nuances of that. I think that we are going to be wading in the deep end of pool and literally drowning in worship, and I can't wait for that. But also knowing that there were some things we wanted to talk about in addressing the church that weren't going to come up in the next few months or, or chapters, we've decided to kind of pull over and address some things. It's been a blessing to my own soul to think about these things, to talk with the staff about them. And I had a whole list of things that I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to confess to you that the list kept growing the more I thought and thought and thought. And so you're going to get a long list today, just for the record. Uh, one of the most anticipated political events of the year, at least in our country, is called the President's State of the Union Address. That famous source of all things truthful, Wikipedia, says this. State of the Union is the address presented by the President of the United States to a joint session of the United States Congress, typically delivered annually. The address not only reports on the condition of the nation, but also allows the president to outline, says his or her, interestingly, agenda, legislative agenda for which they need the cooperation of Congress and national priorities, end quote. In other words, the State of the Union does two things. It establishes looking around the Union and seeing, giving a report on the country, but it also is about laying out an agenda for moving forward. What I want to do in our brief time this morning is have a bit of a state of the, the church, state of the MRBC moment with each other. What are we doing? How are we doing? Said another way, is our church healthy? Are we doing well? Are we doing exceedingly well? Are there areas that we need to, to shore up? My friend Mark Dever has a, a whole scheme where he evaluates churches with nine distinguishing marks called nine marks of a healthy church. And I appreciate that, but this morning we're going to look at a dozen. Uh, I'm breaking all the homiletical rules. I, I, I teach preaching, and, and when you see someone with a 12-point outline, you just roll your eyes and say, what in the world? Well, I have a 12-point outline this morning. So what we want to do, though, is talk about realizing, realizing the health of our church, realizing our church's reputation. And let me talk to you a minute, a minute about that word realizing. Because if you look up in the dictionary, the word realizing, it has two dimensions or two different uh, 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 domains of understanding. Realizing can mean that you come to an understanding, you know, I realized something last night. My wife was gone. My son and I, in honor of watching college football, decided to make some brownies. Why are you laughing at that? That's, um, and so we, we got together. There was eggs and oil involved and water and a mix. That was about the extent of it. And we poured it all in the pan, and I was about to put it in, and I realized that there was a part of the instructions that said, spray the pan with something that won't make it stick, those are my words, to the bottom before you stick it in the stinking oven. I didn't do that, and so uh, we had what we call affectionately now scrape brownies. You just kind of scrape them off the bottom. 
I realized I had done that. I figured it out. Something happened, and, and I realized it. I came to understand it. Well, that's important when we're realizing our church's reputation. Our church has a reputation with each other. Our church has a reputation in our community. You may not realize it, but our church has a reputation nationally and internationally with some people. And it's important to realize it. Let's understand it. That's one nuance of the word realize. But there's also another understanding of that word. To realize means to make something real, to make it happen, to cause it to come to fruition. I think it's a great word to realize our church's reputation, which means let's, let's see how we're doing and let's also make it real according to a biblical pattern and mandate. So as we uh, kind of circle the wagons this morning, I want us to look at a dozen attributes of a healthy church's reputation. A dozen attributes of a healthy church's reputation. And as we go through these, I want you to think about it in, in two levels. First of all, how are we doing corporately, but even more importantly, how are we doing individually that would add to this corporate reputation of our church? How are we realizing how we're doing, and how are we realizing what we want to do? The first should be obvious. We're Mission Road Bible Church, right? Submission or submissive to Scripture. We want our church's reputation to be one that is submissive to Scripture, just a few passages you know very well. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We could say this. How blessed is the church who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We don't get our clues from, and cues from the world. How blessed is a church that does not stand in the path of sinners. We are people trying to be holy and righteous before the Lord. We want to be a a group of people who are influencing each other toward holiness. Nor a church that sits in the seat of scoffers. But his or our church's delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in that law, he meditates day and night. And then there's the consequences, those beautiful consequences that happens as a result. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. I was looking at my yard yesterday and withering. The, the idea of a, of a tree that didn't drop leaves is a, is a blessed thought. Whatever he does, he prospers. Think about that. Whatever he does, he prospers. Apply that corporately. And whatever a church does, it prospers if the delight is truly in God's word. And the wicked are not like that. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the way of the righteous, and the righteous defined in the New Testament are those who have received the righteousness of Christ and are believers. We, we know the gospel. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And if we are going to be a church that honors God and has a reputation in the community of something, I want it to be that we are dinosaurs. We believe in an old book from an old and living God who did not change his word from eternity past to eternity future. He has spoken without a speech impediment. The great God who invented language has spoken. And he froze his word, he froze his language in 66 books. 
that we can look at, interpret, understand, and apply. We say over and over, if we're going to be a church that's like this, that is submissive to Scripture, we need to understand the difference between appreciating the truth and applying the truth. I have a great fear in my own life that I will appreciate truth without applying the truth. What does appreciation look like? You like the truth. You underline the verse. You read the book. You go to church. You like the sermon. You tell the pastor, thank you. That's appreciating the truth, saying the truth was good. Applying the truth is when the truth actually starts changing your life. Here's a question for you. When you're talking to your wife, men, or your husband, ladies, or your children, or your friends, or your care group, or your discipleship, instead of saying, did you have your quiet time this week, let's try this. Try this tonight at care group. What did you read, study, or learn this week that caused something to change in your thinking or your actions? What made it change? Not what did you just learn. The devil knows the Bible. What, what implications were there for us? How about this? Are you spending time? Are we spending time with God and his word? I'm, it's tempting to not go on to the other 11 and just to stay here. I just want to tell you. What a blessed gift we have to live in 2015 where we have... We have the whole thing. We have the entirety of God's canon. I mean, it just may, we, we can read what God has said freely. We don't have to hide this in some plank under the kitchen. We can do this. We have it. What a gift. It means that corporately, if we are submissive to Scripture, that we're preaching God's Word, that we're preaching and teaching God's truth from cover to cover, that our Sunday schools are teaching, that our fellowship groups, which we're going to be moving into in a few months here, are, are teaching. And let me just, let me just tell you, are you, ask you, are you putting yourself in the way of every opportunity to learn and grow? If there's an opportunity to learn and grow from God's word, do you want to be in that meeting in the way of God's truth? We have a very sweet reputation of this. One of the things that I loved when I came to this church for change years ago was that this church loved God's word. Loving God's word and being submissive to God's word is the move from appreciation to application. And we should be doing that together. I have no interest in being a part of a church that just likes the truth. Let's be a part of a church that's submissive to God's truth. Number two, fixated on Jesus. I love this word fixated. I looked it up in Noah Webster's little book and he says this, to cause to acquire an obsessive attachment to someone or something. I love that. To cause to acquire an obsessive attachment to someone or something. Literally, to direct one eye, one's eyes towards. We want to be a church who's obsessed with, fixated upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, where do you get that? Hebrews 12, verse 1 since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
How so? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Are you obsessed with Christ? There should be nothing more interesting to a Christian than Jesus. Nothing more precious to a Christian than Jesus. Nothing more desirable to a Christian than Jesus. Holly played it so beautifully a minute ago on the flute. Fairest Lord Jesus, better, greater than everything and anything else. And by the way, he will never be better or greater than anything else until we know who he is and what he's like and what he said and what he's done. And you can only find that out in the Bible. See how those go hand in glove? Think about our mission statement. We say it week in and week out, but that, fr- that phrase in the middle is so important. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life. He is to come to have Colossians 1.18, first place in everything. Why? You know why? Because he's alive. He has been resurrected from the dead. He is somewhere doing something. He is alive. And our, our focus is to be fixated on Christ. We won't take the time to do this right now, but I, I, maybe, maybe we'll do this next Sunday night at our church meeting just for fun. Is just to have all of you stand up and between Romans and uh, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, right in there. The apocalypse is different. Matthew through Acts is too easy. And just have anybody drop open anywhere and just put your finger down and start reading. I don't think you'll, you'll find yourself going more than 60 seconds or less without running into a reference to Christ. He is the object of our faith. Is he the object of our church? When I think about our church's reputation, I want so desperately for it to be those people believe in a living, resurrected Jesus of Nazareth who is alive and makes a difference in their lives. That is so much the reputation of so many of you. And let's make it the reputation of our body. Number three, consume with prayer. If Jesus is alive, and if Jesus is God, and he invites us to speak to him and the Father, why wouldn't we pray? Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. The direction of the prayer is first and foremost there in in Colossians, toward the body and in serving one another. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, we also pray for you always that God would Count you worthy of your calling. I want to tell you, I, when I look at our church, I, I think one of our weaknesses is, is prayer. Now, if we got really a lot better at prayer this year, I think we would do this next year, and I would say, I look at our church, and I think one of our weaknesses is in prayer. And if we did better the next year, I think I would come to this moment and say, I think we need to do a little bit better in prayer. How? Why? Because until we're doing what the Bible says, which is praying always, can we have some improvement in our prayer? Pray without ceasing When we get to that point, we can say, let's stop focusing on being better at our prayer. Actually, that's not true, because we can have better prayers at that point. Do we pray? Oh, I'm so convicted by that passage in 
where the Lord, Matthew, the Lord leaves um, Peter, James, and John a few feet from him in, in Gethsemane. He goes in and falls down on his face to pray. He prays with such intensity that he's sweating blood. And he comes back out. He actually prays, Father, take this cup from me. And what does he hear from heaven? Nothing. Nothing, no response. So he prays the second and third time. In between each of those, he, he wanted the fellowship of his father and his friends. And when his father answered nothing, he went out to see his friends. And the three men, all three times, were asleep. But you remember what he said? Could you not even pray for one hour that strikes me. Like praying for an hour is no big deal. You guys couldn't even pray for an hour? I've told you when I was in seminary, I, I took a class on, on prayer, and, and uh, the instructor, well, the assignment for the prayer for the class was to pray one hour every day, which I thought, oh, that's a great thing. And so I remember going out to try that the first time, and after five minutes, was in trouble. Just ran out. Of, I was praying for the grass that would grow, and... The issue is not setting a clock. The issue is resetting our souls. It's to talk to someone we love. We w prayer will not be intense for us if we're not fixated on Christ and submissive to Scripture. So as, um, as we kind of rethink our structure, we'll hear more about this next week. One of the things we want to do on our corporate times when we come together is incorporate more prayer uh, corporate prayer with each other, for each other on those Sunday nights. And prayer is not a public speech about God. Prayer is a heartfelt conversation with God. Boy, I want us to be a praying church. I want that to be a reputation that we realize. I love it. I got to tell you, I love it when I see people out in the atrium, sometimes here in our church, and you see them bowed in prayer, maybe a hand on a shoulder, and they're praying right there, right then. That's the way we ought to be. Praying, praying, praying. A man, woman, or a church who does not pray often and deeply and regularly is an arrogant person spiritually. Because what we're announcing is we don't really need God, right? We're, we're okay without you, God. I've got this covered. Let's go on to number four before we get too, more, too much more convicted. Number four, humble in relationships. Humble in relationships. This comes right out of Paul's admonition in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's our default. That's where we start. We're always doing things out of selfishness and empty conceit. But with humility of mind, literally lowliness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility is not this little, little attitude that you go around and you don't, don't, don't recognize anybody. Uh, you don't recognize yourself. You just recognize it. That's not humility. It's, it's not that attitude that if you think you have it, you don't. It's the point of obedience. Humility is defined by the next verse. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, and have this attitude in yourself, which also existed in Christ Jesus. In other words, humility is that we're thinking about others more than ourselves. Now, 
if you're smart, and you are, you would ask, okay, that sounds like a good plan, but if I'm taking care of everybody else, there's a great fear that nothing in my own life will be taken care of. Well, that's true, unless everyone else is doing this as well, right? What would it look like if our church was constantly looking out for the interests of others? Well, I can tell you in part what that looks like. I see it happening all the time. I can recognize and realize that in our church in so many ways. We had a funeral the other night. People coming early, staying late, ministering. It's incredible to watch. But I think we need to realize that even more in how we live and act. Is that it implies a great sacrifice on our part. In other words, to look out for someone else's interest is not in addition to our own. It's usually at the expense of our own. Sacrificial, genuine care. Sacrificial, genuine care. Humble in relationships. Where we're not in relationships for what we can get out of them, we're in every relationship for what we can provide for it. And listen, friends, if we all did that together, everybody's needs would be covered. Everybody's wants and desires would be covered. Humble in relationships, not self-promoting, but others interested. Number five. This feels like just giving a, a, a laundry list, but that's because it's a big laundry list. Number five, faithful in attendance. Faithful in attendance. This is a little odd to talk to people who are at church about attending. This is usually the, the sermon that you send out to all those who missed last week. But anyway... Hebrews 10, let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, let us consider how to be together in, in moving each other in humble service, as we said in the previous point. How do we do that? Well, we're considering how to do it. Then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together. And then he just jabs the knife in as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying, show up. You say, oh, Rick, is this, is this the sermon where the pastor says you ought to come to church? Yes, it's the sermon where the pastor says you ought to. Because the writers of the Hebrews said too. Gathering together is not an option. When we gather why do we do so? To worship together, to learn from one another, to encourage one another, to be encouraged, to give encouragement, to give. Let me ask you a question. Honestly and brutally, what priorities do you have in your heart that potentially could elbow Sunday worship attendance out of the way to bow the knee to that priority? It's not about me having someone to preach to. It's about us being obedient to the Lord. Sports, kids' sports, weariness, unresolved relationships at home or at church. What, are the, what, what prevents us from coming? I know you've heard it. I know it's silly. You'll hear it more. But I really believe that Sunday morning begins Saturday night. 
I have to start getting, getting ready for Sunday morning, Saturday. And the younger your kids are, the more preparation you need to do, right? Uh, you got clothes and things and showers and baths and whatever you need to do. And it's hard. Sunday morning is hard. Not only that, add to the, the fact that I, I believe all the powers of hell are against us on Saturday, Sunday morning. I think anything that the enemy can do to prevent us from coming to be with God's people, corporately worshiping, worshiping he will lay those traps. Don't you find that things happen on Sunday morning that are just a little odd? I, I, honestly, I'm not going out on a limb. I think that is spiritual warfare. Faithful in attendance. Is it important to come? Not, it is important, not just so that Rick has someone to preach to. It's being humble in service to one another. It's encouraging one another. As we'll see in a minute, it's singing with and to one another. Church attendance is not optional if you are a biblical Christian. It's a point of obedience. Number six, enthusiastic in witness. Enthusiastic in witness. I like the word enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, it literally means God in you. Enthuse, God in you. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. In other words, owning your testimony, owning the work of God, owning the gospel, enthusiastic to tell someone the gospel. Do you own your testimony? And what I mean by that is, do you know the work of God in your life so intimately, that you can't wait to tell someone what God has done in your life because of the work of Christ. I was thinking of, um, Susan, I was thinking of Eric, who's put his testimony in a little pamphlet and just will give it to anybody who will listen. His own personal track. That's a great thing to do. Are you ready to tell your own personal track? Are you your own personal living tract? I can't wait to tell you what God has done in my life. Imagine if you won the lottery. Not that anyone at Mission Row would ever play the lottery. But imagine if you won the lottery, or better yet, if some distant uncle that you didn't know left you $10 million. Would that not make you happy? And maybe something you might want to share with people. Now you're thinking, no, I wouldn't share with anybody because then they would want my money. No, no you would. You would help Mission Row pay off its debt. I appreciate that. Thank you. You would tell people something, that, something great that happened to you. <laughs> Is there anything greater we can tell someone than that God saved us from eternity in hell to himself with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ to live with him now and in the future forever? Is there anything better are we enthusiastic to tell people? Do we know the gospel, love the gospel, care that the gospel has real and eternal consequences? This is a real simple statement, but if you don't know enough of the gospel to tell someone how to be saved, you're probably not a Christian. If you don't know enough to tell someone how to be saved, then you probably don't know enough to be saved. Do you know the gospel? Are you enthusiastic to tell people? Number seven, and Aaron did not give me number seven, okay? Expressive in song. 
Got an amen from, from Aaron. Expressive and song didn't come from Aaron. It came from Paul and the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is remarkable to me. When Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with the wine, and that was just an illustration. Don't be controlled by an external substance. But if you're going to be controlled by something, he says, that's dissipation. Be filled or controlled, pleroma. It's the word of a, of, a, of a sail with wind pushing it along. Be moved along. Be filled with the Spirit. Be motivated, moved along, filled with the Spirit. And then he gives a whole list for the next chapter and a half of consequences of being filled with the Spirit. You know what the first consequence of a person who is filled by the Spirit of God is? Here it is. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. I love sitting on the front row to hear you sing. I love the fact that our, our musicians are, and our music uh, from the stage and instruments are loud enough to hear, but not loud enough to hear us sing. Scott, you do a great job of helping us with that. A spirit-filled church is a singing church because spirit-filled Christians are singing Christians. Now, I know what you're saying. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I am blessing all of the people around me by not singing out loud, Rick. If I were to do that, then it would be a distraction. Can I just ask you, please distract us. Please distract us. I have a friend, Kim, you know who this is, named Rob. He is uh, he was a friend of mine uh, from California, and he can't sing at all. I, I, mean, I mean, he is, you know how... Uh, some people are monotonic. They only have one, one tone. I don't even think he had one. It was like a half tonic or something. It was, it, was, it was one. It was just this whining kind of meandering thing. But every Sunday, and I would sit with him many times, he sang as loud as he could. It was almost a little obnoxious. A mighty fortress is our God. That was about what it sounded like. And I asked him one time, I said, okay, help me with the understanding of your singing because I, I don't think it's any surprise to you that this is not your spiritual gift. But you just seem, he says, you know what? I'm singing to one audience. And here's what I know about God. God is tone deaf. And I, he kind of froze. I thought, well, he created music. And, and he said he's tone deaf with regards to worship, and he's right. He doesn't listen to how good your singing is. He listens to how sincere our hearts are. So some people was, well, I don't sing very well. It says make a joyful noise to the Lord. You can make noise, can't you? I would love for people to walk into our church and experience Anywhere they sit, what I get to experience on the, on the we're, we're a good singing church. Is that a good, well singing? We sing well. But man, I want, I would love to be able to have to replaster our walls because we have sung the plaster off. You know why? Because when you're filled with the Spirit, you can't help but sing. Singing is such a Christian thing. You can always tell your own spiritual health by if and how you sing. And by how, I don't mean how good you sing. I mean how heartfelt you sing. 
just exploding with worship. I mean, oh, we sang it this way. Oh, worship the king, all glorious above. How can we do this? Oh, worship the king. What is that? Spirit-filled people sing in spirit-filled churches. Peel the plaster off the wall because of how we sing. Number eight, is that where we are? Welcoming of guests. Welcoming of guests. I love Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now I know what you're thinking. What does that mean? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Except that some people have entertained angels been hospitable to strangers, and they haven't known it. And you may be saying, well, have you? I don't know. (laughs) It says you won't know it. (laughs) But I have entertained people who weren't angels. I can tell you that for sure. (laughs) The point of that is not the strangers. The point is in the first verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality. You know what hospitality means? Here's the Greek word, love for strangers. Not, not odd people, but love for people you don't know. Little things, like when we had the Belarus choir a few weeks ago and we had more volunteers than we could, we could put people. I love that. That's exactly what we should be doing, loving strangers. And when someone comes into our worship service and they are visiting with us, they're our guests, that is such an awkward moment that we need to mitigate. I mean, except for a few people like Johnny and Karen. I mean, all of us visited here. We were a guest here at one time. Do you remember that first time? It's, it, is a, it is a brave and a daring and an odd and an uncomfortable thing for someone to be a guest or visit a church. And the people who should make that so hospitable and so inviting are not just the greeters at the front. It's the people that we see around. Let me just say it this way. When, when, when the ushers move back to hand out visitor card, your radar ought to be on full alert looking for those, those bleeps as it signals. There's a visitor. There's someone. I want to I make their visit so comfortable and so encouraging. But here's something else. It's typically not the first visit that's significant in the life of someone in a church. It's the second Invite them out to lunch. Invite them out. Do we love strangers? Don't we want to have a church that loves strangers? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. They may be angels. And the point is not to figure out what that is. The point is treat everyone with the highest dignity and respect. Welcoming of guests. Mission Road Bible Church ought to be a place that that loves visitors. I mean, not loves just to have them, but loves them. Number nine, this is not a very long point because we spent a whole sermon on this two weeks ago. Assertive in service. Assertive in service. Verse Peter 4, 10 to 11, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Then he gives the two categories of gifts. Whoever speaks 
is to do so as speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I won't belabor this point. I spent a whole week on this just a few weeks ago, except to say, are you assertive in service? Has that passage that we studied, the passage I just read, motivated you to actually do something? Number 10, deliberate in training. Deliberate in training. I want our church's reputation is to be a disciple-making and a pastor-making and a missionary-making church. 2 Timothy 2, 2, you know it well. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many faithful witnesses... Entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you notice there's five generations, one implied, five generations of training in that that passage. Watch this. Paul to Jesus. Excuse me, let's do that. Jesus to Paul. I'm glad we don't record this this hour. Jesus to Paul. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men to others also. Five generations of training in one verse. You understand that all of us are sitting here who know the gospel as the result of the faithful training of someone to someone to someone who gave it to us. Where are we in that chain? Do you have the baton in your hand to pass to someone else? And listen, that is a bloody baton. There has been blood spilt to give us the gospel. What does it look like in our church? Well, first of all, it looks like Sunday school and care groups and Children's programs on Wednesdays and Sundays. And um, I'm still trying to evaluate why one in four adults come to Sunday school at Mission Road. It's a statistic. I just got to say it. Are we deliberate in training and being trained? The equipping institute that we're doing on Wednesday nights, an opportunity to be equipped. Now, I understand some of you are serving, and that's, probably an even higher priority. We have the Expositor Seminary this year. We want to be a church that trains pastors. So can I just give you a little heads up of what's coming in the next few years? You are going to see young men, some younger than others, um, here preaching, preaching for me, doing calls to worship, doing announcements, doing communion, serving. We want that to happen. And let me just say, not only is it a training opportunity for them, it's an opportunity for us to be patient with a young man who's learning how to do these things. I want this to be a living laboratory. This should be a good place, a very safe place to try and swing and miss, to try and fail, and we come back. I don't want this to be like that church that I had heard about from a friend who uh, the pastor was trying to train some of his elders and deacons and leaders to teach and he gave them opportunities on Sunday nights and a group of people rose up, revolt, and split the church because they said, this is inferior. We want the pastor and the pastor only. I want to pray that God never makes this church Rick or any pastor-centric It has to be a group of godly men. And we get to train and be patient. And if you hear a bad sermon from these guys, and you might, and from me, and you will, just come back next week. I mean, even Olympic divers belly flop sometimes. 
I think. Can I say this too? Just as a footnote, if we're going to be training a training church and deliberate training, I just have to say this. We are going to be a masculine church. And I don't say that to the detriment of our ladies. I say that to your service. Because men train men to do leadership in the church. Titus 2 says women also train women to do their own defined leadership in the church. We're going to get there in Titus 2 in a moment. But it means that God has called men to lead the church, so we're going to be a largely masculine church. And I, I hope, ladies, that is an encouragement to you, not a discouragement. Number 11. I want to spend six weeks on this, but I can only spend a few minutes. Intentional at home. Intentional at home. When we're realizing our church's reputation, how are we doing? And when we're also looking at how we want to do, how are we doing at home? Um, if you were to take me to lunch, and you're welcome to, and say, where do we need to work at church? I would say we need better marriages and better parenting. Now, that's not because I see some radical things. I, I mean, I, I know some things are at issue that we need to address. But what that is, it goes back to submissive to Scripture and application versus appreciation. Are we taking it home? Is it having an impact? Husbands, do, or do you have exemplary marriages and how you're leading your wife. Wives, do you have an exemplary marriage and how you're submitting to your husband? Are we training our children? Are we disciplining our children in the nurture of the Lord? Are we sparing the rod or are we spoiling the child? How are we doing in our parenting? How are we doing in our relationships with our spouses? Ephesians 5, to 6, 4 talks specifically about this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Parents, Train your children, and children, don't rebel against your parents. We don't have time to look at that passage. Just know that there is a gospel witness that's at stake in how we do marriage, and how we do parenting. We're going to be looking at that more intensely over the next few years. Um, I don't think we'll ever stop looking at it, but I want your lives, your homes to be lights for the gospel because mom and dad have a relationship not that's perfect but that's forgiving not that's the, the be all end all but there's one that understands how to extend and receive grace and forgiveness most of us would say we like our we, we love our spouses I want you to learn to like them it's the one God's given you training our children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Intentional at home. And what we're doing at home, what we're doing at the church, go hand in glove. They come together. And number 12. Devoted to discipleship. The Great Commission says, make disciples in Matthew 28. Verse 19, the Book of Titus chapter 2 says, Older men disciple younger men. Older women disciple younger women, which is the same thing as saying younger men look to older men to be discipled. Younger women look to older women to be discipled. It should be relationships. Let me break it down really simply. Discipleship is nothing other than spiritual friendships within the church intended to grow one another. 
spiritual friendships so that your, your relationship with one another actually moves the ball down the field of our own walks with Christ. Discipleship, I know, can be an older man with a younger man or an older woman with a younger woman or a more mature with a less mature and you're kind of pulling them along, but it's never a one-way street. There are men who I disciple who speak into my life and who disciple me back all the time. Are we devoted to spiritual friendships within our body where we're teaching and learning and sharing biblical truth with one another? So you look at those, those 12. Do we, as we realize our church's reputation, is this, is this, this is what the Bible lays out. Is, are, how are we doing? And I think some things we'd say better than others and some things we would say less than others. Okay, but let's realize it for Let's make it real. How can we be devoted? I'm hoping that uh, you can talk about these things even tonight at, at your care groups. We're going to be more intentional about our membership. If you're a part of our church, you should become a member where you're committed to us and we can be committed to you. We, we, don't, we, we can't just shepherd people who just kind of flit in and out without any commitment. I love going to sporting events. If any of you have World Series tickets, I'm happy to <laughs> share that experience with you. I love college football, professional football, basketball games, but one of my favorite things to do is to go to a baseball game and get a big bag of peanuts. Amen? Peanuts taste best in a baseball park. But I've noticed something that I do at the baseball park. I love taking a handful, and you got to crack it just the right way on the side, and it splits open, and it's a, it's a technique, and you pop it so that you can keep both, or sometimes three. I've had four before, peanuts in one shell, and then you throw it down. It is a technique that, that must be learned is every, every father must teach his children how to shell peanuts. It's part of growing up. I love sitting there watching baseball. You got a big Coke Zero or something and you're throwing it. But I noticed something. I just shell the nuts, pop them out of my mouth, and carelessly drop the shells on the ground. A few years ago, I was... Um, at a Dodger game and waiting to talk to a player who I was going to talk to afterwards. He was a friend of a friend and I was going to get to meet him. So everyone had left the stadium and I was kind of there. Most people had left the stadium and I was waiting down at the bottom. And I noticed dozens and dozens of people with brooms and little, um, what do you call them? Pans, things, coming around sweeping up all the stuff. And it particularly pierced me when I saw this girl, probably a high school age girl, coming down my row and she stopped for an extra few seconds to get up all my shells. That's not a bad thing necessarily. I, I get that. But I thought about that and I realized I would never do that at home. Just drop the shells anywhere. Here was my thinking. That's someone else's job. Someone gets paid to do that. 
That's not my responsibility. Look, I'm not telling you you can't drop the shells at the Royals game. But that mindset comes into my own heart in the church all the time. That's someone else's job. That's someone else's responsibility. I can just make a mess and someone else can clean it up and know I'm not just talking about physical messes. We all have to ask ourselves if we want to be a part of creating problems in the church or solving problems in the church. Let's realize our reputation as a church. Father, please show us how we are and how we should be. I am so convicted by so many of these passages you've laid out so clearly. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. Please cause me to be more intentional in the specific areas that I've felt the penetrating power of your presence in my own heart. We want to be a gospel church that loves Christ, that knows the gospel, that shares the gospel, that glories in the gospel. We want to be a word-centered church that understands that your truth is the only place we can find your mind and thoughts because it's articulated in the person of Christ. Oh God, make us to know and own these 12 points, these 12 passages really, and make them our reputation as well as our goal. Thank you for Mission Road Bible Church. Oh God, how I thank you that this is my church family that these are the people who I grow from and grow with and grow toward you because of them. We see so much of your kindness and grace. Please cause us to excel still more. For the glory of our great God, we pray. Amen.